Inside Health continues. I'm Mark Allen, along with the insane Daryl Wayne. We are uh, recording our show from Washington, D.C., where we are uh, headquartered at the Organic and Natural Health Association in Washington, D.C. Check them out. Karen Howard, thank you very much for letting us sit here and use your facilities. We really do appreciate that. We're going to take a look at another kind of health. We're going to take a look at our financial health. Uh, our guest is James D. Virgilio. He is, he's got more initials after his name than most doctors that we talk to. Uh, he's a CFP. Uh, he's got C-I-M-A-M-I. Oh, you're, you've got a master's degree too, right? Yes, too many things to keep track of, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, welcome to Late Night Health. Do you think that most people are financially healthy, James? No. In fact, there's there's been a lot of articles coming out in the past couple of weeks that indicate this, whether you're a baby boomer, part of the silent generation, or a millennial, uh, you are probably behind the eight ball when it comes to finances. In fact, one of two, one of two of Americans in reality does not have not only not enough money, saved to provide for their needs, but they have no money saved to provide for their needs. When I was um, starting my career a number of years ago, we won't go into how many, I did. A, I, uh, I was working uh, for a company that uh, produced programming for the Financial News Network, which is now known as the CNBC, and I always had a problem with stockbrokers. Um, because you walk into a stockbroker and you say, hey, I want to buy XYZ because I've heard that this is a good investment. And they say, well, we don't think it's a good investment here at our brokerage house. Uh, we think you should buy ABC. And that day that you walk into their office, there's a big sign saying in the back room saying, if you sell ABC, you get a higher commission today. Is that still going on? That is still going on, and it, it might be more hidden than it once was, but one out of ten, only one out of ten financial advisors, financial planners, stockbrokers, investment advisors, put whatever name you want on them, are not acting that way. And so, again, it's a little more secret, a little bit harder to peel back the onion and figure out what's happening, but primarily something very similar is going on to that, and let's just call that a conflict of interest. Obviously, it's the health show. <laughs> a big so, conflict of interest. Right, and I'm sure often on this on this particular show you talk a lot about how you're trying to get the right information for your health, and that may or may not be, of course, on this particular show, right, from the mainstream medical community, and you may have research that indicates otherwise. At least in the medical world, you know, doctors are held to the Hippocratic Oath, so they must do what's best for you. And if a doctor goes outside of that, there's no practice. In the financial world, you can have plenty of conflicts of interest, and there's nothing legally wrong with it. So I could, and, and I don't think there's any certification required. Can I just put out a shingle and say, now I'm a financial uh, consultant rather than um, uh, a talk show host? You certainly can. And in fact, there's a wide variety of names you could call yourself. You could tomorrow become a financial advisor, have a website, and find a way to link up to that, and there would be nothing that would stop you from doing so. So there's no accreditation process when it comes to using a specific job title as a, again, financial advisor, financial planner, investment manager, wealth manager, whatever name you want to put on it. There's nobody telling you you can or cannot call yourself those names. And many of these people are commissioned 
so if they sell you that stock, XYZ stock or ABC stock, they're making money before you even leave the building. Correct. And in fact, it's extremely difficult, Mark, to know what you're even paying your advisor. If your advisor is not a fiduciary, a word that's going to become very important in our time together today, and a fiduciary has to do what's in your best interest, you can think of them like a doctor that's taking Hippocratic Oath and doing the right thing for you specifically at all times. If they're not one of them, which nine of ten are not, then you're going to get some form of a salesperson, regardless of what they call themselves. And that particular salesperson may work for a Merrill Lynch or a Northwestern Mutual or pick one of the other ones, which means they have a lot of choices for you, a lot of things they can do for you. They're certainly not bad people, but at the end of the day, they do get paid differently depending upon what they put you in. And in fact, it's almost impossible to find out what you're paying a lot of these guys and girls as your advisor because it's not clearly listed on a statement. So if you own a particular fund or stock, you may have no idea that you're actually paying an internal fee, an external fee, or anything else, and they don't have to tell you. So it's rife with confusion and difficulty for the consumer to figure out who's a good advisor, how do I know if they're representing my best interest, and what are they even getting paid for what they're doing? Uh, one of the, the issues I've always had with stockbrokers is I know they have licensing. But the bottom line is, you just said it, they are salespeople, and nothing, really nothing more. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. That's why I'm on this show today. It's why I'm on television. It's why I write articles. I am not trying to disparage my own profession, but I believe my profession should rise to a higher level. You know, I believe in a world where if you're going to take advice or counsel or consulting, that should be given to you from someone who is unbiased, objective, and looking out for your best interest. I do not think if somebody wants to be a salesperson, they should be able to represent themselves as a consultant, objective party when they are in fact not. If you're going to go to a salesperson, you should know this person is selling me something. They could be a great person. I could like them. They could have tons of integrity. But I need to know that they are not an objective consultant. They're not on my quote-unquote board, so to speak. They are attempting to represent something which will then make them money, which may or may not be in my own best interest. And I think the confusion is really what drives so much of the frustration with financial, quote-unquote, professionals in this country today. It's just very difficult for people to have any idea who they're getting their advice from, if it's good or bad. And a lot of people have had emotionally traumatic situations that lead them to no longer trust financial professionals, and I can't blame them. And the financial planners move on to somebody else and... Mr. and Mrs. Smith have nothing left. You mentioned the word fiduciary. Uh, you've uh, taken courses at uh, at Wharton, the Wharton School of, of Business. Um, you are a fiduciary, fiduciary investor. If I come to you and I say I have this much money to invest, uh, how do I pay you? Because I know you're altruistic and you're going to help me, but honestly, you have to make a living to support yourself and your family as well. Correct. And so the industry best practice for this is to wind up charging a percentage-based fee. And so we'll charge in my firm in particular 1%. That's going to cover all of your wealth management. That means it's going to cover your financial planning and your investment management, all under this most important umbrella, which is legally we become your guardian. We must is do that, what is best uh, for I'm you sorry, in all one? I'm sorry, James. Is that 1% based on what you increase my wealth from? Or if I come in with a hundred grand, off the top you get 1%? 
it comes in from the total amount of assets that are being managed. And there are multiple ways that fiduciaries can collect fees. So the most prominent is that way, and there's reasons why that's good and bad. There's no perfect fee-based system. That's good and bad, good primarily because if your wealth increases, uh, of course, the amount that, that my firm is getting or a fiduciary is getting increases, and if it decreases, it decreases in my case as well. And you want to make sure you just don't look at a fee as an investment fee either because in reality, financial planning is the most important thing any any normal American is going to undertake, and that's sort of a black and white science. But you can charge performance fees, you can have an hourly fee, you can have a flat fee. Uh, I think what matters most is you want to make sure that whatever fee structure is being used aligns with human nature. And I'll give you one simple example. Performance fees were popular for just a, really a few minutes in the landscape of charging a fee. And the reason <laughs> they've gone they've gone way out of favor is although it seems intuitive, well, wait, James, I'll just pay you when you make me money, which seems like a very reasonable request. It's a horrible thing for human nature. It incents the advisors or people to basically shoot for the moon if they wind up having a bad year or two because they feel behind. And it's almost this gambler's fallacy, this gambler's paradox. And once we go down further, we tend to get reckless. And that's a very dangerous thing. It's been well observed in not only hedge funds, but also fiduciary firms as well as brokerage firms. You really don't want to have a big performance fee in there. It just incents all kinds of the wrong types of behavior. The the um, the industry itself does it self-regulate right now? <laughs> I wish it's self-regulated right now. It it does not. In fact, it's heavily regulated, which is one of the reasons why it doesn't self-regulate. And so, to kind of peel back the curtain, very simply, you have firms like mine, which are fiduciaries, which are based upon an Investment Advisor Act from 1940, which means we, in fact, must do what is best for clients. This this debate we're having right here, this discussion we're having right here, has been going on for the past 120 years. And you've always had this part of the community that wants to be able to be an objective counselor. And then what makes it confusing is the other side, all the salespeople, they just copy whatever is done from my side of the world. So they don't have any such obligation, yet they take all the same names. So once upon a time, it was all stockbrokers, like you mentioned. Then, well, where did this term financial advisor came from? Well, it came from fiduciaries in 1940 creating this legislative act, thinking this will solve the problem, except there's nothing to prevent anyone from calling themselves a financial advisor. So, Can I call myself a fiduciary, or do I have to have a... That's the, and therein lies the most important the most important thing we probably talked about all day today is you cannot call yourself a fiduciary. And in fact, if you do call yourself a fiduciary and you hold yourself out to be one, you can be held out for quote unquote malpractice just like you would be as a doctor. You'd be holding yourself out for something that you are in fact not, and therefore that would be illegal. And so a lot of it does come down to sort of a legal oath. There's not a fiduciary database any client can easily look at. Uh, there's ways I've written about is how you identify fiduciaries, what they say and can't say in that kind of situation. But you could not call yourself a fiduciary and legally get away with it. You could certainly lie and hope that nobody catches you. Wow. Uh, which is, how is that different than uh, being a stockbroker and saying this is the best stock for you, even though I'm making a higher commission today than I would have yesterday? Uh, our guest is uh, James DeVerge. De and we are talking about uh, uh, your financial health. Uh, the American dream has been, uh, and I don't know for how many hundreds of years, owning property. Uh, we only have a couple of moments left. Should we own our own homes or should we rent today? This answer surprises the majority of people, but on average, you're far better off renting a home 
than you are owning a home. And the real reason is residential real estate that you live in, that you occupy, that you make as your home is not a good investment. In fact, it's a terrible investment. You wind up losing about 12% per year when you factor in all of your costs, yet most Americans feel like putting a significant amount of their net worth into a home is a good investment. It's just not mathematically true. So what I should do, invest in a mall, uh, uh, industrial real estate, or is real estate is, itself not that's a good a, investment? I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that, Mark. No, commercial real estate has and, and, and will continue to be a good investment. If you're investing in something that gives you an income back, you have tenants, you're developing land, you're improving the place, that's going to be a viable investment. But most Americans, in fact, eight out of 10, Mark, they think that the home they live in is the best investment they have, and it's just not the case. In fact, like we mentioned, you're typically going to lose a lot of money by owning well, if you're, you know, you, you're, in, you're, you're in New York City? I'm in Florida. You, the Florida is a very in, popular in, Got it. It is. Yep. But I was thinking if you were in New York City, it would be, um, uh, you know, maybe you could drive the, uh, the, the prices down. Uh, in in New York City, we are out of time. Quickly, what is your re- your uh, your uh, website, sir? Sure, it's cbdwealth.com. Cbdwealth.com. Uh, we appreciate your time here on Late Night Health and helping us be uh, financially healthy. I'm Mark Allen. Coming up next, Robert Clancy, uh, and we're going to turn the turn this back to. Uh, uh, the insane Daryl Wayne in the studio as uh, we continue here on Late Night Health. Join us at LateNightHealth.com. Recently, I met Jacqueline from Bright here in Los Angeles. She gave me a hearing exam and then showed me how to hear again with the new Signia Pure Series hearing aids, and she can give you your life back too. I hear birds chirping, birds cooing, and even my wife. They easily connect to my smartphone. The Signia hearing aids are amazing, and with the charge and go, I don't have to fiddle with batteries and hear all day long. Not hearing is frustrating for you and your family. I know, you don't have a problem, but trust me, call Bright here now for a free hearing exam, a $125 value, yours free, just for making an appointment now. There are offices throughout the Los Angeles area. Call Bright here now at 323-424-7100. That's 323-424-7100 for a free hearing exam. There's no obligation. Call now, 323-424-7100, or visit them on the web at brighthear.com. The latest from the greatest, the best in new music by classic rockers, with your host, the insane Daryl Wayne. This is Alice Cooper, and if Daryl Wayne is insane, what does that that make me criminally insane. Stick around to find out. Many of the artist interviews for the latest from the greatest have been captured on audiobook. There is a volume one and volume two. Great information and conversations with people in the industry and people surrounded by the industry and of course the rock stars themselves. I'm the Reverend Al Green and you're listening to The Insane Daryl Wayne. And I said Wayne Insane. You can find it on Amazon or Blackstone Audio. Search for the latest from the greatest from Daryl Wayne, D-A-R-R-E-L-L-W-A-Y-N-E. Hello, this is Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to the insane Daryl Wayne, aren't you? (laughs) 